and um, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 66. <clears throat> and we're going to look particularly at the second part of verse 2. where God, speaking through Isaiah, says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But to understand what that means and what it means for us personally, <clears throat> we, we're going to have to just remind ourselves of the, the context to the rest of that passage I read from Isaiah chapter 66 from verses 1 to 6. <clears throat> we must remember that Isaiah was called to minister to a very religious nation which had turned its back upon God. Now, that may seem to be a contradiction. A very religious nation which had turned its back upon God. But let me read Isaiah 66 as the last chapter in, in, in the book of Isaiah. Let me read from the first chapter of Isaiah where uh, after introducing himself <clears throat> he says this or God says this verse 2 <clears throat> hear O heavens and give ear O earth for the Lord has spoken I have reared children and brought them up but they have rebelled against me the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. That was the condition of this very religious people, nation, uh, in Isaiah's time. They were very religious. Go back to Isaiah chapter 66 and uh, uh, verse 5, for example. The, the people the people that God is condemning as corrupt, uh, have said, let the Lord be glorified. So, you know, they're all very religious. Let the Lord be glorified, they say, at the same moment as they are putting down the very people whom God likes. Those who are truly God's servants and followers. They were very religious. They were very proud of their, their temple. Uh, this was the temple that Solomon had built. A glorious building. 
wonderful building. But what does God think of their temple? Well, the beginning of chapter 66, <clears throat> thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? <clears throat> Where do I live, in other words? Well, the Jews thought he lived in the temple in Jerusalem. It's a wonderful temple. Very proud of it. Very proud of its uh, priesthood and its rituals and so on. And they thought they'd got God locked up in the temple. And, and God is here saying, your temple doesn't mean anything to me. Because I inhabit eternity. That's Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Thus says the, thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What use is this temple that you built? I don't live there. That's not the place of my rest. Where is the place of my rest? It's a rhetorical question. Uh, saying, don't think I live in your temple, because I don't. I fill heaven and earth. And uh, his, it's, it's, it's a great put down to their pride in their temple. And then he goes on, of course, <clears throat> in verse 3, he talks about the sacrifices they made. Now, these sacrifices were the very sacrifices that God had commanded Moses uh, to operate, to have, uh, in the command and covenant he gave to them on Mount Sinai. So they were things that God had commanded. But look at what God has to say about them. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man, like a murderer. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. In other words, God says, I am disgusted with your sacrifices. But you told us to make these sacrifices. We're only doing what you told us to do, they might answer. And what God is replying is this. Oh yes, you have remembered the rituals and the ceremonies of the law. Moses' law. But you have completely forgotten the morality and the messianic promise that is contained in that law for which the law was designed to, to bring morality, uh, to bring goodness, uh, to bring be good behavior and, and godly behavior to a nation and to show that there was going to come a sacrifice, the Messiah, pictured by all those animal sacrifices which could not take away sin, but this one who is going to come, who is going to die upon a cross, yes, he will take away his people's sin. So you see, they have forgotten the, the heart of the law, the morality they ignored, as we saw from Isaiah chapter 1, and the messianic hope that the law embodies, or embodied, they 
had no idea about. They didn't see it. They were utterly blind to that. Now Isaiah and others were not blind to it. In Isaiah chapter 53, you know very well that he says, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Christ can take away our sin because he has borne that sin. These animal sacrifices couldn't do that. They were just pictures telling the people, look, you must put your trust in one who is yet to come. And some people did, of course. Abraham did. Isaac did. Jacob did. Isaiah did. And his fellow prophets. But the people of Israel generally did not. Their morality was corrupted. And their sacrifices, therefore, and their temple worship and their priesthood and all the ceremonial things they did in what they thought was pleasing God was, in God's sight, simply rubbish. Now, our situation today is not all that different. We live in a world which is full of religion. We live in a world where there are millions of people who profess to be Christians. We live in a world where there are many churches and denominations which profess to follow Christ. But they're going through the motions of religion. And the heart that God desires, the heart is not there. It's missing. It's absent. And we are like these ancient Israelites. We've forgotten God. We've turned our back upon God. Um, Jeremiah has a nice way of putting it, doesn't he? I think it's in his first chapter. Uh, he says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've, they've hewn out uh, for themselves cisterns out of the rock. They've hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's a very, very good picture of the Christless religion practiced by so many then and now. So that brings us to the verses we really want to look at. The second part of verse 2, right in the middle of this condemnation of the empty religion of the uh, people of Israel of Isaiah's day and general description of people in all ages, right in the middle of this condemnation, he, he sort of pauses the second part of verse 2 and says, this is the one on whom I will look. And then he speaks of three things, <clears throat> three qualifications for the favor of God. The one who is humble, the one who is contrite in spirit, and the one who trembles at my word. You need all three, by the way. They're not alternatives. 
humility, contrition, and response to the word of God. And that's what we're going to look at. Because this is true religion in the sight of God. This is what God wants. It's what he wants of us this morning and every day, of course. So first of all, what does he mean by saying, on this one, I will look. Well, that means look with favor. It's a a Hebraism. Uh, To look, for God to look is usually for him to look with favor. Um, Psalm 86, I've got a quotation here from Psalm 86, verse 16. Uh, Look unto me. And favor me, psalmist writes. Look to me and favor me. Give thy strength to thy servant and give salvation to the son of thine handmaid. That's incidentally Young's literal translation. It's translated differently. But literally in the original Hebrew it's look unto me and favor me. So, and I could prove it from many other t- scriptures, but <clears throat> we don't need to do that. When, so, when God says, this is the one on whom I will look, he means this is the person, the kind of person on whom I will look with favor, upon whom I will bestow my favor, to whom I will impart my favor, who will feel and know blessed by God Almighty. This is the one. These are the qualifications, if I may put it that way. These are the qualifications for receiving the favor of God. Must be important, mustn't it? Must be important to you. Must be important to me. Well then, there are three things. First of all, humble. They must be humble. Now, the word translated humble in the Uh, uh, original Hebrew is simply the common word for poor used as we use it uh, to describe poverty of any kind but I I think the uh, ESV translators have correctly interpreted it by saying they have to be poor in a spiritual sense Uh, many translations simply use the word poor here. Uh, But it's talking about the same thing as the Lord Jesus is talking about in the first beatitude in Matthew chapter 5. The first of those beatitudes is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it means to recognize uh, that that you, I, we, have absolutely no possessions of a spiritual nature that are able to please God. The only thing we bring to God of a spiritual nature is our sin as we seek for his mercy and forgiveness for the sake of Jesus Christ. We have nothing else to bring. We are 
utterly destitute of any spiritual capacity that is going to please God uh, or in any way satisfy him and compensate for the sin that we commit. We don't have it. We're absolutely poverty stricken. I think the hymn that we just sang, um, uh, Top Ladies hymn, that uh, speaks of this very clearly and puts it in a, in a beautiful uh, poetic way that I cannot attain to. So let's have it from Top Lady, Rock of Ages. That's the hymn. Second and third verses. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked, spiritually, naked come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Learn those verses as I have learned them because they actually summarize what it means to be spiritually poor. Poor in spirit. And remember it is those who are poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. They are acceptable to God. But you know, I think there's more to it than that. As I said, the basic word here in Isaiah 66 is simply poor. And there is a sense in which we are not only bereft of any spiritual abilities or, or, or quantities that, that is a, are acceptable to God, we actually don't own anything. We don't own anything. We have nothing that we can bring to God that God has not first given to us. Uh, Paul is, uh, in writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 7, um, the, the Corinthians were very proud of themselves. They, they really thought they were a cut above uh, everyone else. Uh, they were somewhat arrogant in their religious pride. And Paul cuts them down to size. He says, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, from God, of course, he means, if you have received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Everything we have and are come from God. Now, that is, that is true of every human being. Uh, Acts 17, I quoted earlier, I'll repeat it again. God, uh, who, who made the world and everything in it, uh, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he worshipped by men's hands for he gives to everybody life and breath and all things 
you have anything? You have a car? You have a money? money? Do you have a house, a home? Do you have an income? Do you have friends? Do you have a body? And do you have a mind? They all belong to God. And whilst that is true of humanity in general, it is especially true of those who follow Christ. Going on from 1 Corinthians 4, 7 uh, to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> where Paul thunders, he's very cross with the Corinthians, he says, do you not know, and he's talking about to Christians, remember, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have from God, and that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. ESV cuts off those last words, but, but nevertheless, here is a clear statement. We are not our own. If we are Christians, we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And this is expressed very beautifully, I think, in the uh, 12th chapter of Romans, where Paul is summarizing the gospel, if you like, or the results or the implications of the gospel, perhaps is a better way to put it. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, he's been setting out what he calls the mercies of God. Setting out the gospel and God's provision for the salvation of sinners like ourselves. And then he comes to chapter 12, because he didn't divide it into chapters, but nevertheless it is divided for our convenience. He comes to chapter 12 and the first two verses where we read, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of the mercies of God, because of my first 11 chapters and all that I've told you there, we beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your rational service. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed in the spirit of your mind that you might, be, might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Present your bodies, that includes the mind, because he mentions mind in the same verse. Present your bodies, present what you are, all that you are, a living sacrifice to God. God doesn't want us to die for him, he may want some to do that but the majority of us he's asking us to become living sacrifices to live for Christ to be able to say with the Apostle Paul for me to live is Christ that's what God wants that's what God is looking for and that is what it means to be humble, to recognize that <clears throat> we actually possess nothing. Everything we possess 
whether material or spiritual or intellectual or whatever it is, our skills, our abilities, uh, we are to uh, sacrifice them to God, which means give them into his hands so that he can use them for his own glory. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Have we taken this on board? Have you done that? Have I done that? Have we taken on board the fact that we are not our own? We are bought with a price. This is spiritual poverty. This is what qualifies us to inherit the kingdom of heaven. All right, second word. These are the ones that I will favor, he says. He who is humble, he who is contrite in spirit. Now, to some extent, we've begun uh, to, to deal with this point in talking to the children. Uh, but for the benefit of those who I know will be listening to this sermon on the internet uh, later, but just the sermon, I, I need to repeat very briefly what we learned in the children's talk. The word contrite, the English word contrite, is the only word in English that adequately reflects the original Hebrew. So we can analyze the word contrite and be basically analyzing what the original Hebrew says. What does contrite mean? Not a word we use very commonly in ordinary speech, is it? Well, it's derived from a Latin verb meaning to bruise or to crush or to grind. And you see, I showed the children a, a, a pestle and mortar, which is used for grinding uh, grain, for example, so that it can be made into bread. And now it might seem a bit alarming, but you see, God actually uses this um, in, uh, as a picture, I'm sorry, God uses it as a picture of his dealings with his people. In Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 28, and if you've got the ESV, uh, don't look at the main text, which doesn't make any sense at all to me, look at the marginal translation. Uh, and what Isaiah 28, 28 is saying is, is this. Uh, and I'm going to put it into the language of the old King James Version, because it's very clear there. Bread, corn is bruised. You have to <coughs> grind the bread, corn, the grain, in order to make flour before you can make bread. That was the point we emphasized earlier on. And although it may sound rather alarming that God has to, has to, has to grind us, uh, God has to bruise us, God has to crush us, doesn't sound very happy, does it? But you see, uh, it's actually a very pleasant message because what it is saying is that God has to deal with us in this manner 
in order that we shall be useful to him. See, the, the raw grain isn't useful for making bread. No use. You have to reduce the raw grain to flour by grinding, crushing, bruising it. Use whatever term you like. And once you've got flour, very fine, fine powder, then you can mix it up with other things and make bread from it. So you see, the work of God in, in grinding us, in bruising us, in making us contrite is a work of preparation for useful service to him. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be pleasant all the time. It isn't. There are some hard things that we have to learn about ourselves. There, there may be some suffering of one sort or another that we have to undergo whilst God is grinding us, preparing us to serve him. But the purpose of God's grinding and bruising is preparation for service so that the grain might be turned into flour that could then be used to make bread. I, I hope you've got the picture. It's a, it's a wonderful picture, really. And, and that is something that has to be done. And only God can do it. <clears throat> I told the children, it's no use putting the grain in a baking tin, putting it in the oven and hoping it will turn into bread. It won't. Uh, you can't do it yourself. We cannot make ourselves contrite. It's something God has to do. And then, of course, I showed the children a pestle and mortar. And I said, the pestle is the Holy Spirit of God, or pictures the Holy Spirit of God, and the mortar pictures the Word of God. See, when you use a pestle and mortar, uh, you put the grain in, in, in the mortar, the bowl-shaped object, and you use the pestle, like a hammer, uh, to grind the corn, grind the grain. And God the Holy Spirit brings us into intimate contact with the Word. It grinds us into the Word, if you like. He, the Holy Spirit, grinds us into the Word of God. And between them, the Spirit and the Word, we can be transformed from people with lumpy lives into those people with lives which are not without sin, of course, but which are smooth and ready to be used in the service of God. That's a wonderful picture. And, of course, it introduces us to our third point. Because the third qualification here is that God favors those who tremble at his word. There's, there's, there's uh, an important preliminary I have to make here. Uh, we'll talk about what it means to tremble at the word of God in just a moment. But 
we cannot tremble at the word of God unless we believe that it is the word of God. You see, <clears throat> let, let me illustrate it in this way. Um, <clears throat> a few days ago I received a, a, a message from the uh, uh, from, from HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue, right? Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. The other people, the tax people, the tax man. <clears throat> and that message said, you owe this certain amount of tax which you must pay by, I think it was January the 21st or something like that. Now, I took notice of that because they also told me that if I didn't return the money or pay the money by, by the due date, uh, I would be fined and they would take more money off me. Uh, so I really took notice of it. I, I, I didn't ignore it. I, I didn't put it on the back burner. I paid the money immediately. I trembled at their message, if you like. Uh, but um, I quite often get messages on the internet, emails, which uh, say, we are HMRC, and you owe this amount of money, and if you click on this button, uh, you will be given the opportunity of paying that money. And of course, if you click on the button, you get transferred to a fraud site. And, and I, I look at these messages, I had one or two like this, and, and from other organizations other than HMRC. You look at it closely and you, you suddenly spot a spelling mistake, or you spot a phrase which isn't, isn't real English. And you look at the top and you see that the email comes from somebody in uh, Bulgaria or Nigeria. And you know it's a scam. You know it's a fraud. And what do you do? You just delete it. Take no notice of it. Now, there are many people who call themselves Christians <coughs> who have no respect for the Bible, whatever. There are many evangelical Christians or people who claim to be evangelicals who do not believe the Bible is is the word of God in its totality. They think it's got mistakes in it. They think it's, it's written in, in, in an age when people didn't understand all sorts of things. Uh, and and they, they say, we are evangelicals. We, we believe the Bible, but we don't believe that it is inerrant. We don't believe that it doesn't have mistakes in it. Well now, you cannot, you cannot tremble at the word of God unless you have a right doctrine of scripture. <clears throat> unless you believe with the Apostle Paul in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God breathed, breathed out by God and is profitable uh, for instruction, for doctrine, for instruction, for argumentation, for reproof and for instruction in righteousness.
you can't tremble at the word of God. And therefore you cannot please God unless you have a right biblical doctrine of the Bible. Now some say, well that's circular, you're using the Bible to prove the Bible is true. Well, I have no problem with that. Because if the Bible is revelation, there's no other way of finding out the things that the Bible says about itself. So, that's an important preliminary point. You cannot respond in any way to the Bible if you don't believe that it is actually God speaking to you through the writings of the prophets. Translated, okay, into, into our language, different translations vary somewhat, but we can, always, we can always find our way back to what must have been written in the very first place, the original um, autographs, as they're called. Well, then what is it to tremble at the word of God? You see, there, there's a bit of a problem, isn't there, here? <clears throat> there are two great themes that run all the way through the Bible, Old Testament to New Testament. They are the fear of God and the love of God. The, the love we should show to God. Now, are these not contradictory? Uh, God says we should fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we're told in Proverbs and Psalms. Marked um, from uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, uh, it says, Honor all people. Peter is sort of summing up the advice he's been giving uh, to uh, his, his recipients of his letters. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Love your fellow Christians. Fear God. Honor the king or the emperor. You see how in the New Testament uh, we're told to fear God. The Lord Jesus himself said, do not fear those who are able to destroy the body uh, but have nothing else they can do. But fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Fear God. And never be, allow people to tell you that the Old Testament teaches us to fear God and the New Testament teaches us to love God. Not true. They both teach both. And when the Lord Jesus Christ says that the first commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, he's actually quoting Moses from the Old Testament. So how can we reconcile that requirement? How can we fit both loving God and fearing God because we believe the Bible is God's word. How can we fit those together and tremble at the word of God in, both, in, in the right way? Well, I'm going to finish with this. There's, there's a, a lovely passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that I think shows us uh, 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 how we reconcile those, those two things. You see, basically, I, I'm going to say that 
to tremble at the word of God is to respond to the word of God. You see, you can tremble with fear, but you can also tremble with love. You can tremble uh, with anticipation. You can tremble with joy. I mean, this is actually human experience. Have you ever trembled with joy? Watch some of these videos you see on the television of children opening their Christmas presents. You see some of them, they go crazy <laughs> because they're so happy that they've received this thing that they really wanted. They, they, they literally tremble uh, with joy. So you can tremble for uh, many different things. Trembling is an emotional response to something. And, and how, can we, how can we do that when we have this apparent conflict between fearing God and loving God? Well, in Hebrews 12, we read this in verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice uh, whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Now that's a reference to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And this is the reaction of, of fear, almost terror, that the Israelites had at that time. Uh, but you've not come to Mount Sinai, he says. Uh, uh, he said, that was a terrifying sight. Uh, but he says, you have come verse uh, 21, 22, 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then he goes on to say that we are receiving a heaven, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, verse 26, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Reverence and fear, I think is a better translation of the original. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, now you have them both together there, don't you? We are, to, we are to tremble at the word of God. We are to fear God. We are to understand that he is a consuming fire where sin is concerned. But we are responding in this way because God has given to us who believe in Christ, a kingdom that can never be shaken, like, unlike the kingdoms of the world, 
that can be shaken, fall apart, rise and fall. The kingdom of Christ will never be shaken, will never be changed. And God has, has given that kingdom to us who believe in Christ. And he said, because of God's amazing gift, fear God, treat him with reverence and awe, as well as love him for the mercy he has shown us. To tremble at the word of God then is to respond to the word of God. And this is the challenge, I think, that we must take up. We read the word, we hear the word preached, we believe the word, we believe it is God's word, but do we respond to it? Do we just let it go through our minds in one ear, out the other? Are we simply hearers of the word, but not doers of the word? Do we fear God and therefore obey his commandments? And do we love God? And do we rejoice in God? Do our emotions respond and react to the word of God? Are we different people? Because we have been ground into the, into the reality and the promises and the blessings of the word of God by the Holy Spirit. I trust that is so.